From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn about Sese Mas, a program educating Wisconsin's Latino community on reproductive health and justice. You can't have one person growing alone. It's always better when you can have a whole family, a whole community, a whole neighborhood, and the whole state grow. So then we'll hear from a local comedian about how stand-up has helped her cope with trauma. Comedy kind of helped me mentally process that, writing and talking about my experience in a way that other people could kind of laugh about it but not at it, you know. Plus, we'll learn about a Milwaukee park renamed for legendary musician Al Jarreau. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is known for providing reproductive health care throughout the state, but the organization does much more than that. Aside from their clinical work, Planned Parenthood provides education on sexual health and safety, which requires a lot of cultural understanding. Sese Mas is a program run through Planned Parenthood, which is focused on giving Wisconsin's Latino community the tools it needs to advocate for reproductive justice, their right to control their sexuality and reproduction. The program is celebrating its 20th anniversary with an event at the Mitchell Park Pavilion this Saturday, September 30th. Ahead of that, I'm joined by Maria Barker, the Vice President of the Education Department for Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about Sese Mas? I would be happy to <laughs> talk about Sese Mas. Sese Mas is like my baby. Uh, Sese Mas is our Spanish language curriculum. It stands for Cuidándonos Creceremos Más Sanos. And it is a curriculum that Planned Parenthood, the Medical College of Wisconsin, and the Latino community of Wisconsin, the three of us work together to create the Spanish language curriculum that, that started being completely about reproductive health. So more so the services Planned Parenthood offers like birth control methods, sexually transmitted infections, uh, reproductive cancers like breast cancer, uh, cervical cancer, testicular cancer, information such as that, but then we enhanced it by developing discussion sessions on cultural values and cultural norms, because what we find is that dependent on how you grew up and in what environment, that really has a lot to do with how you feel about sexuality, how you normalize conversations about sexuality. So we found that the Latino population in Wisconsin, especially Spanish-speaking populations, they really needed some time to sit back and think about how we grew up in this Latino culture and how the conversations about sexuality being so taboo in our communities and how that has impacted our ability to just have open conversations about sexuality, right? Because a lot of people don't even understand that sexuality is way more comprehensive than 
just the act of sex, right? So most people are afraid of us having discussions with their children about sex. But when we are able to take the time to talk about what sexuality is, we're all sexual beings. It's not one conversation about the birds and the bees. It's about, you know, conversations of everyday life. We're sexual beings from the time we're born till we die. So, you know, uh, know, we need to have discussions on bodily autonomy and who can touch you and how do you give consent and how do you take care of your body and it's uh, your, your body so you should know the changes that are happening to it and then puberty and then um, you know healthy relationships uh, beginning uh, to be a sexual uh, sexually active being and the responsibilities that go with that and the pleasures that go with that and then you know talking about menopause and talking about the importance of preventative health care just all of those the services that are provided via our health centers and we we had those discussions with the community I would say for about maybe 10 years, nine years or so. But then as the community began to trust us because the people who facilitate the curriculum are promotores de salud. So they're community people, people who live, work, and play in the communities we serve. And these are people who are greatly trusted. So when they were out facilitating the reproductive health curricula that we originally started with, people quickly started asking them questions about, hey, we see a sign that says um, that we are electing an alderman. What's an alderman? And hey, you know, my garbage isn't getting picked up all the time or my alley isn't being plowed. So we quickly recognized that the Latino community didn't know much about advocacy, civic engagement. So that's when our curriculum expanded to be more of a reproductive justice curriculum. So we still talk about reproductive health, but we add that component of advocacy, self-advocacy, civic engagement so that people learn how to navigate through uh, that world as well. And that is very important to the livelihood and the health of uh, our communities. For sure. So Sesemas started as really a, a way of engaging in these conversations about sexuality, about the many things that surround our sexuality and our health, but it has expanded into these other areas. What do you see as, um, I don't want to say the legacy because obviously Sesemas still exists. It is not stagnant in any way, but what do you see as right now its living legacy in the community? So, you know, I guess the beauty of Cese Mas is that it is a curriculum that doesn't just have a Planned Parenthood agenda. Obviously, you know, we go out into the community and we talk about reproductive health, but we take the time to listen to the people who attend our home health parties to recognize that community people also have needs. And until we, the people who are working with community, understand that their needs and their agenda is just as important as ours, if we don't recognize that, we are missing the ball. Because community 
it's important what their needs are, right? They can't begin to think of getting a pap smear, using birth control, uh, preventative health care until their basic needs are met. You know, we need to be able to come together to listen to each other so that we can find out the good and the needs that we all have. It sounds like a lot of this is is really about navigating systems, navigating systems that might be unfamiliar to people who have just entered our community or who exist in communities in Wisconsin that just aren't attended to in the same way as English-speaking communities especially, but uh, white communities. Let's, <laughs> let's call it what it is. What are the, the culturally specific ways that you reach out into the Latino community to give them this greater access? I would say promotores de salud, um, health promoters, are the key piece. You can have the most outstanding curriculum, which CESEMAS is outstanding. It's an outstanding reproductive justice curriculum. But I think the heart of CESEMAS is with our promotores de salud. They have the autonomy to share the information in the curriculum to their networks in the way that they see fit. Most of the time it's done through small group sessions called home health parties, which were pretty much modeled like Tupperware parties, Avon parties, where a group of 10 people come together and a promotora de salud comes into the house and we have a little party and we have an informal conversation about whatever the topic is at hand that people want to talk about. And we share food. It's not a classroom setting. It's not a meeting setting. It's a meeting with community members who are sharing food, who are sharing heartache, who are sharing successes, and who are supporting each other. Promotores de Salud are experts in creating trust in the community so that people really talk about issues that impact them the most. And Promotores de Salud are experts in knowing reputable community resources to connect people with and to show people how to use the community resources before they need the resource so that when they need them, they are comfortable asking for that help. Now, Sesemas is celebrating 20 years which is a big milestone. As an organization, as Planned Parenthood, Sesemas, what would you say you're most proud of? Oh, geez, I could tell you a million and one things I'm proud of. But the one thing that I am the most proud of is uh, our promotores de salud. We have promotores de salud who have been with us for 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, they started with us saying, Maria, how can we do this work? We, you know, we don't know anything about sexual about sexuality about reproductive health let alone reproductive justice but the thing is is that we all have to remember we all have the capacity to learn no matter what age we are so we provide the training for the promotores but they are the ones that thirst for more and more knowledge and they don't thirst for more and more knowledge just to keep the knowledge to themselves. Just like Planned Parenthood, myself and the group of people who help the promotores grow professionally, 
the promotores are helping their communities grow as well, right? Because you can't have one person growing alone. It's always better when you can have a whole family, a whole community, a whole neighborhood, and the whole state, you know, grow. So that is, I would say, the biggest milestone we have is that we have helped community members become the leaders and the professionals in their community that they should be and have always been. We are just providing them the support. Well, Maria, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work, and uh, congratulations. Thank you very much, and I hope to see all of you at our next event, which is in Milwaukee. Anybody is welcome. Please join us on Saturday, September 30th from 2 to 6. Maria Barker is the Vice President of the Education Department for Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin and oversees the Sese Mas program. The program is celebrating its 20th anniversary with an event this Saturday at Milwaukee's Mitchell Park Pavilion. At wuwm.com, you can find more of our coverage of Hispanic Heritage Month. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll learn about a Milwaukee park renamed for a Milwaukee music legend. But first, a local comedian explains her mission to get more women and women of color doing stand-up. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Stand up comedy tends to be dominated by white men. In Milwaukee, 25 year old comedian Maria Acosta is trying to get more women and people of color on stage. Acosta was born in Mexico and moved to Milwaukee as a child, growing up on the city's south side. In addition to doing stand up, she organizes shows through her production company, La Maria Comedy. Her next show, which features a lineup of Hispanic comics, is happening at Zocalo Food Park on October 7th. As part of our Hispanic Heritage Month coverage, WUWM's Emily Files speaks with Maria Acosta about her unexpected path to comedy and what it's like to bridge two cultures in her work. So tell me how you ended up in comedy. Yeah, growing up I was really shy, so when people find out that I do comedy now. They're like, are you, are you, are you serious? We don't, you know, I did theater stuff in high school, but that's different than everybody just focusing on you and, you know, wanting to hear what you have to say. It was more trauma-based. I've done, like, interviews on it, and it, it's really what it comes down to. Trauma is what got me doing comedy. Um, I was dating a guy. We weren't together, but he passed away, and that was, like, the first time I experienced death and I didn't know how to deal with it and I didn't want to stay in my room all day so one of the things I ended up searching up was like comedy open mics um Bremen Cafe that was the first time I went um I didn't do too bad my first time so you know people continuing to encourage me I kind of 
kept going with it, and that's where I'm at right now. I've taken some breaks, but every time I come back to the scene, everybody's really welcoming, so they tell me to keep going. So was that kind of how you processed your grief, doing stand-up? Yeah, so I remember being in the funeral and thinking of jokes, and it was just more like a coping mechanism of trying to get me through it mentally and, you know, not not going crazy for me because, like, um, you know, n- there's not a lot of, like, therapy talk in minority communities, low-income communities. So for me, it was definitely not staying in my room after work because I had an internship and spending time with people who were always joking about it. And I got to meet a lot of people who had a lot of, like, pretty traumatizing experiences, like their moms would passed away or... Um, tragic ways and they use comedy to kind of help them through it and that's that's what ended up happening with me. So when was that? This was um, May 2021. It was uh, like the first week I graduated college so that was already like pretty interesting experience. I was the first person in my family graduate from college so that was fun in itself, and I was doing a road trip with my friend. We were in Colorado, and then I just saw somebody message me on Facebook and tell me about it. And, yeah, like I said, it was, like, the first time I experienced something like that. I didn't know how to process it, and comedy kind of helped me mentally process that, writing and talking about my experience in a way that other people could kind of laugh about it but not at it, you know? Mm-hmm. So you said that you had just graduated from college in uh, 2021 when you started doing stand-up comedy. So when I was doing some research about um, your background, I saw that you got a degree in applied physics. Yeah. So how do you go from earning a physics degree to being a stand-up comic? Yeah, it's such a weird transition. Like I said, um, I do like working at, at things that I'm not the best at where I could work towards them. And physics was something that was like really interesting to me. I took um, some classes in high school and the, getting that college degree, uh, you know, was very important to me and my family. I never planned to do comedy. It wasn't, a, it wasn't in my plan, but here I am. You said you were the first one in your family to go to college. So um, when you graduated from college, and I don't know if you were also like, working in the STEM field after school, but how did your family react to your um, desire to start doing a lot of comedy? Yeah, so I do want to touch in that STEM area because that's always been important to me too. Any STEM area is very male-dominated, so I kind of wanted to change that a little bit, and that's kind of my approach with comedy as well, where there's not a lot of minorities. So Someone has to do it, and I'm okay doing it with myself. That goes for um, what I went to school with and with comedy. I didn't really tell my parents that I was doing it because I don't feel like I have a lot of show for it. So my parents didn't find out until last year, I'd say. They did go to my, my mom went to my Hispanic show last year. And she was just sitting in the front row, and I really appreciated that. It was pretty cool. It was such a cool experience because um, for women, you know, like my sister-in-law's went too, and they're usually at home taking care of the kids. But that night, it was, like, special because it flipped. They were there watching the show, and my brothers were taking care of the kids, and they're watching me on stage and watching the show I produced. It's yeah. pretty cool. 
And how did and how did they respond to your um, stand up routine? Yeah. Um, well, my mom didn't understand it, but she could get the hints. Like, yeah, people are laughing. It's funny. But like I've told them, I talk about uh, my family, like my nieces, and nephews, my little brother. I try to talk about that because it's part of my life. And yeah, I think that show that I produced, even this one, the upcoming one, it's not so much about me. It's more about celebrating the culture and showcasing the comics. And I think you mentioned you saw an all-female comic show that I did. Mm-hmm. So I did it again this year. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much, if you remember, it wasn't like about me. The show wasn't about me. Like, I host it, I produce it, but what I really wanted to do is showcase all these funny women. You know, there's... People are kind of afraid to do all-female lineups and have female headliners. Why are people afraid to produce all-female lineups in it's, comedy? It's hard to sell, you know. It's very difficult to try and get a male-dominated industry to be like, hey, look at women. There's already this perception of women aren't funny, but there's a lot of not funny men I've seen. <laughs> so... So tell me more about what it's been like for you to be um, a female Hispanic comic in this very white male-dominated industry. It's so difficult. It's hard. Comedy is different. I grew up in the south side of Milwaukee. So I grew up speaking Spanish in school with my classmates because they spoke Spanish. I didn't really start speaking English English all the time till I got to college. And it's hard because I don't get a lot of the references. I actually did a, I did a roast battle like last month um, during Madison Comedy Week in Madison. And it's so hard because a lot of like American references that people just know, I don't. Hmm. So if they come to me with like a comeback of a reference of a TV show or something, I'm like, I don't know what to say back because yeah. I don't never heard of it. So it's difficult. Comedy is a little bit different, too, but I've, I've been learning how to tailor it. So in Chicago, there's a lot of Hispanic comics. There's a bigger scene for Hispanic comics, and I've worked in both rooms, an all-Hispanic room, all-Mexican room, and then I've seen, like, at mostly white audience and they'll make the same joke. It's funny, but they just don't get the reference, so there's no laugh, and the comic feels bad. Like, oh, I'm not funny. It's like, no, it's funny. It's just wrong room. How do you balance that because you have this lived experience that you want to talk about, but you also want to make people laugh? Part of it is crowd work. It's more like I'm talking to the audience. They say something, and I try to make a joke off of what they said. Like the usual... The questions, oh, this is your wife, this is, you know, how long have you guys to be, been together? You say seven, seven what, seven years, seven minutes, like, which one? And then that's kind of how I transitioned to it. But there's definitely, you have to definitely find a balance. But sometimes what the audience needs, it's for you to talk to them. And then it's a great show. So you have um, a show that you're producing in October with an all-Hispanic lineup. Tell me about the plans for that. Yes, October 7th, all-Hispanic have Abby Sanchez. He's local favorite in Chicago, a lot of um, the big clubs, Laugh Factory. You know, he's very well-respected over there. 
It's going to be a great lineup. It's You won't get lineups like this a lot. So Where is it happening? It's at Zocalo. It's 636 South 6th Street. So um, before we end the interview, can you just tell me about your heritage and how that kind of factors into your life and your comedy? Yep. So I was born in Mexico. Um, like I said, I did a roast battle and the guy was like, you're Mexican-American. I was like, no, it's just Mexican. <laughs> Not a lot of people know there's a difference. And no hate to Mexican-Americans, but it's I'm, I'm very proud of being Mexican, being born in Mexico. I came here when I was seven, you know, learned a different language. Um, and it's, I grew up in the south side of Milwaukee, so I claim Mexico and I claim the south side of Milwaukee. That's where I'm from. And... Yeah, I try to talk about my experiences that way growing up. We went from being poor to Mexico to growing up poor in the south side of Milwaukee. Um, so I try to talk about that in my comedy. Yeah, I think I could I could tell you one more joke from, Go for from it. it. So one of them is my little brother's. Um, I just say he likes to come up to me and say random things. Like the other day he came up to me and he was like, you're adopted. Usually I don't have time, but that day I had plenty of time. So I looked him in the eyes and I told him, my parents only had you because we needed food stamps. It's a a hard joke. It's a rough joke, but it gets a laugh. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your career in comedy and um, your upcoming show. Thank you for having me. So I really appreciate you reaching out. Maria Acosta is a stand-up comic based in Madison and Milwaukee. She spoke with WUWM's Emily Files. Acosta is producing an all-Hispanic stand-up show at Zocalo Food Truck Park on October 7th. Legendary musician Al Jarreau is from Milwaukee, and this summer the city paid tribute to him. We'll explain how next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Al Jarreau was a legendary jazz, pop, and R&B artist born and raised in Milwaukee. No matter where he went or who he was talking to, he always spoke fondly of the city and his upbringing here. This summer, Milwaukee showed love back to Jarreau by naming a park in his honor. Lake Effect Sam Woods visited the park and spoke to organizer Barbara Smith of Amani United about how she and her partners got the name changed and what it means to memorialize Jarreau in her neighborhood. What does it really mean to be free? I think about this question a lot. Is it not having to work a job you don't like? Is it spending your time traveling the world? Perhaps it's about amassing wealth or pledging allegiance to the flag. Maybe it has to do with leading with your heart and letting your mind get out of the way. But for Al Jarreau, freedom sounded something like this. (laughs) 
Born and raised in Milwaukee, Jarreau was a legendary jazz, pop, and R&B artist active from the 1960s until he passed away in 2017. Throughout his career, he collected Grammys across jazz, pop, and R&B genres. He toured the world, he produced theme songs for TV, and he inspired generations to be themselves and to dream big. But beyond the accolades, Jarreau always traced his inspiration to growing up in Milwaukee. No matter where he went in the world, what awards he won, whoever he was talking to, he always spoke fondly of Milwaukee and memorialized this love in a song about feeling at home here. And now, Milwaukee is memorializing our love for Jarreau. This summer, a cozy pocket park near the intersection of Locust and 30th Street was renamed Alwyn Lopez Jarreau Park, or Al Jarreau Park for short. This effort to rename the park was led by Amani United, a resident group dedicated to serving the Amani neighborhood, which is located in the heart of Milwaukee's north side, a couple miles from where Jarreau grew up. Most often, their work involves talking to residents about changes they'd like to see in the neighborhood related to housing, economic development, and education. But they cover a lot of ground and really are a fixture in the neighborhood. Barbara Smith, an Amani resident herself and chair of Amani United's Housing and Economic Development Committee, has been working on getting the park renamed after Algero for a few years. This took time because resident voice is important to Barbara, as she's seen plenty of times where people from outside Amani come in with these grand ideas on what to do to improve the neighborhood, but just don't consult the people who already live there. I talked to Barbara about how Amani United engage with residents and community partners to not only get the park's name changed, but also generate ideas on what they'd like to see in the park and what they'd like it to look like and feel like. Residents were uh, engaged in, in giving their ideas and giving uh, their feedback on what they would like to see happen in the park. Uh, because it's one thing to, to rename a park, but to, to revamp the park, to, to make it welcoming, inviting, so that people will come to the park, utilize the park, uh, is important as well. Uh, so out of those feedback sessions from those residents, a lot of the ideas came about. So again, the, the momentum began to build. So then we start looking at, okay, so what, what could actually take place in the park? What could the park actually look like? You know, we, we talked about it. I think we went back and forth maybe four or five different times before we actually kind of settled on something we think that the Amani neighborhood is going to be proud to say, this is our park. Um, this is our park at park. This is our tribute to Al Jarreau even on a, a smaller scale because he, Al Jarreau is, he's just this fantastic person. So this is just our, our small tribute to a, a, a great being. You might have caught that I've said the park was renamed Al Jarreau Park. That's because before this summer, the park was named the Cocker Play Area after a guy named Emmanuel Cocker who owned and subdivided land in the area over 100 years ago. And interesting fact, he actually founded a town in Kansas as well. The town was named Cocker City, after he won naming rights in a poker match. Yes, really, a poker match. But walk around Imani today and ask people what they know about Emmanuel Cocker, and you're likely to get a lot of confused looks. But Al Jarreau, his relevance to Milwaukee lives on. In addition to always speaking highly of Milwaukee wherever he went, Jarreau stayed involved in the city as long as he lived, 
In a 2016 op-ed in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Giroux outlined the need for arts and music education funding as schools in the region were cutting arts programming to meet their budgets. He saw the limitless potential in Milwaukee's young people, and he saw arts funding as imperative for unlocking that potential and getting them engaged positively with the world and themselves. In the op-ed, he says, quote, a young person who has a trumpet or ballet slippers or some paintbrushes in their bag is probably not also carrying a weapon. Giroux's concern for youth development is echoed by Barbara, who hopes that renaming the park in Giroux's honor inspires people, especially young people, to learn about Giroux and let his understanding of freedom take hold within them. It's extremely important because it's, it allows uh, residents, especially our youth, especially our babies, to see that someone who had uh, such a great relevance um, years ago is, is still important, is still relevant to this day. And it, it's also a teaching moment um, for those young people. Again, going back to engaging residents and allowing them and us to be a part of the greatness that's going to take place in this park is, is so very important. Um, and again, it, it just opens the eyes, opens the mind to something that very well could not have been thought of prior to what they're going to actually be able to see. Beyond just renaming the park, residents also wanted art which, you know, is fitting for a park named after an artist. So Amani United and Partners brought in Milwaukee-based muralist Tia Richardson to lead a mural painting with the help of residents. The mural, like Al Jarreau's music, is vibrant, colorful, and free-flowing, featuring landmarks from the Amani neighborhood, children playing, and of course, Jarreau himself. Barbara hopes this mural and the park become a place of peace, where you can step away from the cacophony of the world and remember what freedom meant to Al Jarreau and what it means to you. The conversations that were held just amongst strangers, because it, it may have been our first time seeing each other. Initially, we were talking about the mural, but then it went into to other conversations. Little uh, children, uh, I remember two little young ladies, extremely helpful. Um, they, they wanted to help Miss Tia put the, the paints out, put out the paint brushes, uh, lay the cloths down. Um, and, and of course they, they were painting. Um, and then even with the cleanup to the very end, they, they helped, um, you know, clean up everything, carry things to the Miss Tia's vehicle um, and to the, the storage bin. Just to see their excitement and what was happening, what was going on, was wonderful and great. So we, if nobody else, we know that those two little people, they're going to make sure that no damage comes to this mural because I think they've taken personal ownership, uh, which is great. And then just looking at, at the mural, there is quite a few different items or landmarks within the Amani neighborhood that are a part of this this mural. There are some planters um, that are on the mural. Those planters are located right in the Amani neighborhood on the uh, Dominican Center grounds. Um, and then the, the vibrant colors just just brings brings a whole lot of energy, brings a whole lot of life to to the neighborhood. Um, so if there's ever a blah moment or 
somebody is feeling some type of way come to the park look look at the, the vibrancy of the mural and bring your phone and put on some algebra music <laughs> <laughs> and and i'm sure you that whatever that little funk is you are going to be okay and and that's that's the point that's the purpose to bring more positive energy you know not only to the park but to yourself if you know you're, you're going through something or you're feeling some type of way I asked Barbara what song comes to mind when she thinks of Al Jarreau, and she said his song Morning was her favorite, that it feels like a lullaby that encourages her to step back and dream. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods. That was Barbara Smith. Amani resident and chair of the Amani United Housing and Economic Development Committee. She spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. Algero Park is located near the intersection of 30th and Locust Street. Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. All jazz greats had to start somewhere. Since 2020 in the city, the Milwaukee Jazz Institute has been offering programs to students of all ages who want to get great. WUWM's Maian Silver went to the Institute's home base to sit down with founder and artistic director jazz pianist Mark Davis and ask him about its mission. Throughout the interview, you'll hear the jazz track Blues for George, which was composed by Davis and is performed by We Six. So where are we right now? We right now are sitting in the Jazz Gallery Center for the Arts in River West of Milwaukee. The Jazz Gallery is a, actually has an incredible history. This was a, a very dynamic jazz club in the late 70s, early 80s, and a lot of the great jazz musicians played here. It was known as the Jazz Gallery, and at that time, Dexter Gordon and Sarah Vaughan and Chet Baker and Art Blakey, Wynton Marsalis, and so many musicians came through and played in this in this space, uh, but it's lived on and it's now a community art space that features uh, local artists in a gallery setting. And we partner with the Jazz Gallery, the Milwaukee Jazz Institute partners with them, and we make use of this space. It's a beautiful place to uh, rehearse and perform. There's a Yamaha grand piano and drum set and, and uh, PA and, and a little stage. And so we hold our ensembles here. We have in-person ensembles. We have eight of them, four youth ensembles and four adult ensembles that meet weekly and are taught by some of our MJI faculty. Nice. So how did Milwaukee Jazz Institute come about? So, and I sometimes we refer to it as MJI. MJI got started, uh, well, in a way, it got started many decades ago because uh, all the faculty members and the, the, the people involved have been involved with this music for a long time, both performing and, and educating. But we got started in late 2019, November of 2019. We actually formed the organization and then got our nonprofit status, our 501c3 in February 2020, just in time for the pandemic. Man, so, that's insane. Yeah, so we're just coming up on, on being three years old. Uh, but like I say, we've been at this for a long time. And um, 
And, but we're very excited about the direction of MJI. It just continues to grow and evolve as, as the world has changed. We've been evolving and uh, currently things are just really on the up and up for us. So you've got students coming in to the Jazz Gallery to play on this cool checkerboard floored uh, you know, performance space. How did you adapt during the pandemic? I mean, people are starting to get together more in person now, but what was it like for these past three years trying to teach jazz to people? The mission of, of MJI is to promote jazz through performance and through education. And we were, when we first got started in 2019 and early 2020, we were teaching in person. When the pandemic hit, we, like a lot of organizations and, and schools and whatnot, we went online and we started doing a, a, just a whole lot of online workshops on all kinds of different topics that relate to jazz music. And some were on, on the history of the music, on listening, on technique. And some of those workshops were workshops that people could sign up for and pay for. And uh, we started attracting people, not only from Milwaukee, but we suddenly found we were getting people from all over the country and then all over the world. So it was actually quite exciting for us, um, you know, just getting started with the organization to realize that we had the potential to have an impact quite broadly, even beyond the city of Milwaukee. What are some basics about, about jazz that you start teaching people? I mean, is everybody who comes into the ensemble, do they have a certain level of experience or can you be a beginner? And how do you even start getting into jazz? We, we currently have eight ensembles that meet weekly in person. And um, some of the, one of the ensembles is, is rather young. We have middle school students, we have high school students, and then, and then we have adult students. So we really run the whole range of ages and, and also just backgrounds of people and where they come from and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so um, as far as how people get started, what we're, one of the things we're doing is we've started something called the Jazz Circle, which is whenever you see something that MJI offers that says the jazz circle, that means it's free and open to the public. Some of those things are online. Uh, Paul Silberglight, one of our faculty members who's an, an incredible jazz guitarist, has done a, a number of great presentations on the history of jazz or on different, different artists. And so we're putting that out. Uh, those have been online. We're putting it out there and, and attracting people that want to learn more about what, what should you listen for when you hear this music and how can you learn more about the music and how can you learn more about what these artists are doing when they improvise. We're also um, offering classes on jazz theory. So we have an, we've moved to doing some online courses. So people who are interested in understanding how this music is put together can enroll in an online course. And most of our courses are about eight weeks long and they just meet for an hour a week and it gives them some background of understanding this music and how it's put together. That's really cool. So let's say you're talking to somebody who doesn't play or even listen to jazz, and or maybe even one step further, they've said something like, you know, I try to listen to jazz and I just don't understand it. What's the way in for people to try to appreciate this genre of music? You know, there's, there's probably a, a number of different ways to go about doing that. One of the things that we, we have is a, a monthly jam session, and it takes place here at the Jazz Gallery. It's on the second Monday of the month at 8.30 p.m. And a lot of times when people approach me and they're, they're wondering about getting involved with jazz or, or wondering about getting involved with MJI, 
I tell them, hey, come to the jam session, and it's free, and it's open to the public, and you'll, it'll give you a chance to hear musicians of all different levels, all different ages, all different backgrounds, and hear what they're doing. You'll start learning the repertoire that they play. You'll start learning certain tunes that we call jazz standards, meaning tunes that are frequently played by jazz musicians. So once you start getting familiar with the songs or the tunes that are played, that's certainly a way in to start understanding more about what happens when someone improvises. And these jam sessions are really fun. I would encourage anyone to come out and, and check them out because we have people that just come to listen, uh, but we have lots and lots of people that come to, to play and it's, it's improvisatory. We just create different combinations of musicians and they get up on the stage here and we'll call a tune that everyone knows and, and off they go. And, and it, it might be a professional musician who's been playing for decades alongside a high school kid who's just getting started and figuring this music out. And that's one of the ways people learn about it. Nice. If people want to take private lessons, yes. you know, are you doing that in person or virtually, or how do people, how, is that connected to MJI, or how, how does question. that work? Yeah, good question. We, we currently have 14 faculty members, and I don't feel bad about bragging about them because they're some of the, the finest jazz musicians in the area. Some of them live in Chicago, but most live in the Milwaukee area, and they're all available for private lessons, either virtually, meaning online, or, or in person. And, and we at MJI try and connect our faculty with students that are either in our ensemble programs or who, who contact us. We don't get involved directly with setting up the private lessons. We, we allow the instructors to arrange that individually with the students. But we really encourage it because it's one of the great ways to learn this music. That's awesome. And why is jazz education important? This is a big question, you know, but, but why is jazz education important in society, like for people of all ages? You know, it's, it's, that's a great question. You know, this music, you know, when we say jazz, it means different things to different people. And, um, you know, everybody that's involved with it maybe has a particular concept of, of what the music means. But part of the reason why I think it's so diverse is because, you know, different different walks of life, different cultures have their take on it, whether it's Latin jazz or or more of a contemporary funk kind of sound, or maybe it's more of a straight-ahead bebop sound. There's a lot of different approaches to it. So in terms of talking about why is jazz important, I think, I mean, we could talk musically why it's important. One of the reasons musically is because if you study this music, you will gain an understanding of music in general. Because in order to play jazz, you have to understand not only how to play music, but what to play. And because we're improvising, it's not simply reading notes on the page. It's having to understand the theory and, and what, what's involved to create the music. So, you know, even with my piano students, I find once they start studying jazz, they have a whole new outlook on music. If they're a classical pianist, they'll start analyzing the Chopin that they're playing and they'll start realizing what the chords are and what the progressions are. So it also provides a great basis for people who want to go into more contemporary or other kinds of styles of music. It's really the basis for harmonically and rhythmically and melodically for a lot of styles of music. So studying jazz not only prepares you to be a jazz musician, but prepares you to play many styles of music. Mm -hmm. 
in a broader sense, though, I think, you know, th this music, and I was talking about our jam sessions f as an example, it's, it's a music that brings people together from all walks of life. And it's something that we don't necessarily see in either certain styles of music or even just other activities. But this music for, you know, because of the origins of it in black American music and how it has become such a, it's really the fabric of not only American music, but just it permeates so much culture. It's, cu it's a cultural art form and I find that it brings people together of all walks of life and all ages and all backgrounds. How would people get more information about, about MJI? You know, we have things that pop up all the time, and so I always encourage people to su subscribe to our website, milwaukeejazzinstitute.org, and we send out periodic updates about once a week that will let you know about performances that we're doing. We bring in world-famous jazz artists. We just brought in Benny Banak, a great trumpeter and singer. Brian Lynch, we've brought in several times. Camille Thurman, we've been um, doing performances with our faculty at, at different venues. And then we have all kinds of interesting educational things that pop up all the time. So if people subscribe to the website or follow us on Instagram or Facebook, it's a great way to keep up with what we're doing. Nice, Mark Davis, jazz pianist extraordinaire. Thank you so much for coming on Lake Effect. Mayan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. was Mark Davis, jazz pianist and artistic director of the Milwaukee Jazz Institute, speaking with WUWM's Maian Silver. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll look at how Afro-Latinos and their culture can be celebrated and represented during Hispanic Heritage Month. Plus, we'll speak with a Wisconsin master cheesemaker. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll look at how Afro-Latinos and their culture can be celebrated and represented during Hispanic Heritage Month. Plus, we'll speak with a Wisconsin master cheesemaker. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR.